Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hey friends, welcome to this episode. This is a big and important and exciting episode this week. Dr. Gordon Newfield is one of the world's leading child psychologists. I discovered his work because he co-authored a book with Gabor Mate who, as you'll know, if you're a long-time listener, had a huge impact on me, and I know many of you too. And that episode is still one of the most downloaded that we've ever had. So Gordon co-authored a book with Gabor called Hold On To Your Kids. And I was lucky enough to interview Gabor for the podcast, and he introduced me to Gordon. This is an interview that has taken, I think, two years to set up, which is what happens, you know, on this podcast, I really want to speak to the leading authorities in their field, the people who are incredibly booked and busy and hard to get. So sometimes many of the guests that we have on take that long. So this is one of them. This has been two years in the making of back and forth and trying to find a slot in Gordon's schedule. His bio is almost too extensive for this short intro, but the highlights are he's worked as a child development therapist and consultant for over 40 years. He is an international speaker, a global consultant. He's a best-selling author and the founder of the Newfield Institute, which is an online educational institute and worldwide charitable organisation devoted to applying developmental science to the task of raising children. Dr. Newfield's life work, and I think you'll hear in the episode, his absolute passion has been to help adults provide the conditions for children to flourish. He's a father of five and a grandfather to six. But those really are the edited highlights. I could have read an hour-long bio of everything that he has done and achieved in his field. This is an incredibly powerful episode, especially when I ask him, about how I handled a situation with Jesse just earlier that week. And I think you'll be surprised by his answer. I know I was. My main takeaway from this episode, there were many for me, and actually light bulbs were going off for me the whole episode. And I'm curious to hear if you have the same experience. My main takeaway from this episode is that emotional health is messy. So much of what we think of as good, quote unquote, in our children is actually them repressing their big, messy, loud feelings. And Gordon talks brilliantly about some of the consequences of that, of what happens when children start to repress or push away their feelings because they feel that we, as their adults, can't handle them or don't know what to do with them. I learned so much from this episode. I could talk to you all day in this intro about what I learned from it. I won't. I will just let you listen to it. So here it is. And please, as ever, let me know your insights and what you took from it. Here it is. Well, Gordon, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute honour. I'm really excited to be chatting with you this afternoon. This morning for you, isn't it? 
Yes, yes. Uh, 9 a.m. in the morning in Vancouver here, and I'm delighted to be here with you, Zoe. Thank you for the invitation. I had Gabor on the podcast a couple of years ago, and we did this incredible interview. And at the end, I said, oh, thank you. That was amazing. And he's so humble, isn't he? He said, oh, well, if you really want to talk about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about a lot about attachment and child development. Oh, yes. And he said, if you really want to talk about this stuff, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to Gordon. (laughs) Well, that's quite the setup. I hope hope it doesn't disappoint. You know, I loved the book. I've spent the last couple of months really delving into it and a lot of your work. And I think... I'm just really excited to have this conversation, both personally, I'm a mother of two, and for everyone listening. The ages of your children, just to give me a context. One is five, one is 18 months. Yeah. Ah, funnily enough, when I, when I spoke to Gabor, I was pregnant with the now 18-month-old. Ah, About six weeks pregnant, I hadn't told anyone. Mm. And probably like the biggest interview I'd done, you know, it was such a coup to get Gabriel. Oh, but the sorry. whole time I thought I was going to be sick because <laughs> I was having morning sickness. Oh. Obviously, I couldn't say anything, but it was special. But the book is incredible. And it was released, you know, in 2013, wasn't it? In the UK. We only got it last year. So it's still quite yeah. still quite new to us. Well, the um, new edition was released in 2013. It was released in 2004. The year before Facebook arrived on the scene, which was 2005. And so then, because the material really talked about the phenomena, peer orientation, that sets the stage for the information age becoming the age of connection, the digital connection. And so then we had to add two chapters and re-release it, which is what we did in 2013. So what is peer orientation, peer attachment, as you would call it in the book? Well, peer attachment is different than peer orientation. We can have lots of attachments. We can have attachments to our pets, to our grandparents, to virtually anything. There's no concern as long as those attachments do not compete with the attachments a child needs to be the context for being raised, for being taught, for being parented. So the issue is not peer attachments per se, but the issue is there just wasn't a name for it. Well, there was, but it was only used in very esoteric research circles. And that name is peer orientation. And it's basically when Children are being pulled out of orbit from around the adults responsible for them and into orbit around their peers, talking like their peers, acting like their peers, taking their cues from their peers. Orientation here means in the very basic level, they're just getting their sense of self from their peers, who they are, their belonging. So they're basically revolving around their peers, and this pulls them out of orbit from the adults who are meant to be responsible for them with huge implications. It makes parenting so much more difficult. We can't pass on our culture. There's all kinds of confusion that they have. They're not meant to raise each other. The children aren't meant to raise each other. And so this was totally camouflaged in research in the United States because the research in the United States is basically peer-oriented research. That is, It takes whatever is normal 
and it assumes that it is natural. In this case, it creates this blind spot, this flaw, because peer orientation is so normal into the third and fourth generation now. It's assumed to be the way it was meant to be, and it's not. It's very recent relatively in the scheme of things, and it totally changes the face of society, face of civilization, face of parenting, face of schooling, everything else. Yeah, there was something that you said. I can't remember if it was in the book or in an interview. I'm full of your work in my head. Mm. You said adolescents and children in general, we actually mature very slowly, the human species, you know, well into our yes. 20s. We can't regulate ourselves, let alone each other. And that really struck me. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about feelings and how important it is for emotional health to connect yes. with our feelings. And yet in those yes. peer relationships, in my own experience, there was no space for feeling because other children can't contain other children's feelings. Can you talk to this and what this results in when our children shut down those feelings or can't express themselves in that peer group? Well, the brain shuts them down. It's not an intentional kind of thing. Whenever the vulnerability is too much to bear, the brain isn't invested in us suffering. And so it has ways of being able to inhibit feelings, to defend against the feelings that are too vulnerable. So this is exactly what happens when children are too much with each other, even as toddlers and preschoolers, as they start to lose their feelings. Now, when they lose their feelings, they're no longer so upset. They're no longer complaining. They're no longer look as if they're hurt. So we think everything is okay. The most severe example of this would be an orphanage. Nothing bothers them. They don't cry. They're not upset. It looks like everything is fine. Uh, of course, if you adopt one of those, and I spend years consulting for overseas orphanage adoptions, wow, you find that no love is ever enough. They don't feel missing. They don't feel sad. They never feel needy. They never feel full. So it fools us because we have a difficult time with our feelings because our vulnerability lies in our feelings. So it fools us when children are no longer complaining, upset, when they're no longer crying, when it's no longer messy. We think everything is okay. Experts think everything is okay. But that's one of the first things to go. And you're absolutely right, Zoe, and Gabber emphasizes this and so on. It's just that the story of emotional health the story of mental health is in our feelings. We need to feel our emotions. We need to feel our instincts. We need to feel what is happening in us. It's a direct correspondence to feelings. We need to get our feelings back and so on. And so when children orient around their peers, it's not only hard on feelings because their feelings get hurt a lot in peer relationships. In fact, research shows that's a number one source of wounding is peer orientation the number one source of wounding. All you have to do is think back at recess. All you have to do is think back at your elementary school or primary school. All you have to do is you remember, oh my goodness, your feelings get hurt. And what happens is again, so we start losing our feelings. And not only that, when everything is as it should be, when children come home from school at the end of the day and there was some friendly adult around, perhaps grandma was around, then all the feelings would return, which is what they're meant to do. They're meant to come back. 
But when you never have that moment, when the moment you come home, you hook up through the internet or you hook up through social media or your cell phone, you're always in the company of peers. Your feelings never come back. But we're not used to registering when feelings go missing. We assume that everybody has a full gamut of feelings. We don't realize that, my goodness, my child never says, I miss you. My child never says, maybe they say, I don't care, doesn't matter. We see all kinds of evidence of this, and they're in trouble. And our children are in trouble. They're losing their feelings. And peer orientation plays a huge part in this because it's not to say, it's not only not safe to feel your feelings get hurt, but there's no place for your feelings to come back because you're always, always preoccupied with the next contact with your peers and using social media as much as you can to do so. There's so much firing off in my head right now. I'm thinking about my own experience. When did we lose our way as a society at large? And I know sometimes these generalizations are dangerous. We kind of have this idea, don't we, of good children. Was it the Victorian era that really kind of did one over on feelings because we had this idea that good children are seen and not heard. Are we still recovering from that? Because I love that you say emotional health is messy. We're meant to be messy as humans, aren't we? And yet we've got this idea. People say she's such a good little girl, such a good little boy, often when they're compliant and they don't complain and they don't cry. That's not good in in your sense, in in what the research says. Absolutely not. Yes, the Victorian age, uh, but it continued on. Because whenever the focus is more on behavior, and that focus has been on behavior for a long time, and whenever the focus is more on reason, and that has been with us since John Locke in the 17th century, right? He had a problem with women and children because they were too emotional, And now we know that's what's right about about women and children is they're emotional. So we've been against emotions and feelings for a very long time. They're discounted. They're belittled. The two main paradigms, learning theory and the medical disease approach, consider feelings the enemy. The cognitive approach considers feelings a problem. Thinking is where the answer is and so on. And so We don't live in a feeling-friendly world still. It's an uphill battle to be able to say, come on, don't say to a child, calm down. What you're saying to them is you mustn't feel. Emotion is meant to stir us up. And so if you focus more on self-regulation and calming down than you do about the content of the feelings, you're giving the message that it's not okay to feel. It's not okay to be upset. It's not okay to be disappointed. It's not okay to be frustrated. It's not okay to be alarmed. And we give children a thousand messages of that. So yes, it was it the Victorian era. Well, that was an extreme example of when conduct was supreme, but it still reigns supreme. Can I ask you a practical example from my real life? While I've got one of the top child psychologists in the world, <laughs> we've just moved house and I picked my little five-year-old up from school the other day and she'd been fine actually the first week and nothing out of the ordinary and I picked her up from school the other day and the moment she saw me she went crazy screaming crying hitting shouting I was stupid she hated me and I know enough you know I spoke to enough people like I was like right something's happened at school this is a release I could see that it was so clear this is a release she's seen me I'm her safe base 
and she's just releasing. Where I sometimes get confused is the boundary. So she's hitting me and that's a boundary, like a non-negotiable in our house is no hitting. This is where it, it gets sometimes complex for me, never having this modelled. Is where's the feelings okay, but the behaviour's not? What would Let's you deal with the feelings for a while. Yeah. She's only five years of age. So she's not going to be able to meet your expectations and the control of her behavior. Mixed feelings, she'll just be at the very start of those. If they are there, part of me feels really frustrated, part of me doesn't. But let's start what happens right after school. She is very affected, like most sensitive children will be, very affected by the events that are there. It's a long time to wait for you. It's a long time to do so. As soon as she comes to safety, now the brain can no longer tie the emotion, what moved us, because it feelings are actually interpretations of emotional feedback from the body. So her brain can't make sense of this. She is deeply moved, but the minute she sees you, not only does she feel safe enough for her feelings to come back, but the brain is sure that you're the problem. Because this is where she's experiencing everything. So I hate you. I hate you. I want a new mom, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so on, all of this stuff. So the feelings come back. Now, it's wonderful that the feelings came back. That would be dreadful if they didn't. It's wonderful. Now, when frustration turns foul, it turns into impulses to attack. So there's attacking energy to it. If you say to her, don't hit me. Then the brain says, oh, like there's a younger sibling here. I guess that's okay to hit. If I say to her, don't hit a younger sibling, I'm in danger of her starting to hit herself, which of course is even a worst case scenario. Okay. Anyway, when I'm saying don't hit, what the brain registers it as, don't be frustrated. And that is the worst message for emotional health that you could possibly give. So the answer to your question is, it is up to us to find what is okay for us in terms of the eruption of attacking energy so nobody gets hurt. Yeah, because at home I would say hit a pillow, but I was in the playground. If if that works for her. I was activated, you know, because it's a new school, it's in front of all the other mums. There's stuff going on for me in that moment as well. I'm trying to regulate myself. But that's the thing is that's when it's not a good idea that it be non-negotiable. You have a value, but she is nowhere near being able to do this. It is better if you just ignore it. All you do is focus on the frustration. Oh, my goodness, you're so upset. You're so frustrated. All the hits need to come out. We'll get home as soon as we can so we can find something to hit. If they're a thrower, you find something to throw. If they're a biter, you find something to bite. But always the first message is, when it comes to feelings, when it comes to emotion, always the first message is, I can see you're upset, you're stirred up, you're angry, you're whatever it is, you put a handle to it that they can use. That frustration needs to come out. That's the number one message of emotional health. That needs to come out here Honey, let me help you find a way. And so there's no shame. It is invitational. Pretty soon it starts working, but you can't have it that is non-negotiable or zero tolerance because you won't have anything to work with. I've seen so many kids who parents think it's been totally successful. You know, they never hit. 
but they're bringing them to me for depression, bringing them to me for other kinds of things. And I say, well, this wasn't successful. This child isn't feeling the feelings they need to feel. This isn't a success. The best children in the world are ones that are in emotional trouble. And so we mustn't, we mustn't put conduct before. So the best thing is, is some patients, when my children were that age, it was okay with me. I said, oh, if you have to hit someone, hit daddy. I can handle it a lot more and hit me right here on the hand and that will be just fine. And pretty soon you'll be able to manage it a little bit better, but don't you worry about it. You know, the hits are in you and they need to come out. And that saved all the friends and the siblings and the mother because mothers don't like getting hit. <laughs> but, you know, somebody's got to take the heat or you got to be creative. And that's the point point of it is you got to be creative. Now, this is where emotional playgrounds are meant to rescue both relationships and emotions. And it's amazing. But that means that we need to be proactive. We need to find the kind of emotional playground where it is play for them, the hitting, the punching, the play fighting, wherever it is, that's okay for them. And this is where all of the attacking energy comes out. It's actually quite easy. Meanwhile, you are actually giving labels to this. And so pretty soon the child is saying, I'm so frustrated, mommy. I need to get us out. I need to get someplace where I can scream and yell and have a tantrum. Please, mommy, drive me home really quickly so I can have a tantrum, which is perfectly fine. Yeah, she said stuff like that, actually, in the past. She well, that's said, good. I'm feeling really angry. I'm going to shout. And I'm like, that's, that's right. Good. That's good. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, we should always have that, right? All of us should try to head for a safe spot so that we could have our tantrums so that we can be okay in life. I mean, this is what emotional health is so that we can find it. There has to be an outlet. There has to be. So again, getting it out is more important than nobody getting hit. Once we can get it out, we can find a safe way so that nobody gets hit, at least not anybody who would be wounded by it. It's so interesting. And I think what you've just made me realize actually This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash motherkind is that for me, I think if there was some shame coming up around all these other mums kind of staring at me as she's hitting me Uh, and thinking, how is she going to handle this? Well, that's where just going into it very proactively, there's so much frustration in you. It needs to come out. Mommy's the safest place to hit. Just say it out loud. Everybody knows you're in control. Your alpha eyes just kind of like just back everybody away and so on. And uh, you just do it this way and they'll leave you alone. The worst thing in the world is not to have confidence in that moment because they'll all step in (laughs) and start judging you and start telling you what to do. So there's a place where you've got to be able to have these alpha eyes that could castrate somebody at a hundred yards. I mean, that's a gender thing, but you know what I mean. And you just said something almost throwaway, but I think was 
incredibly important when you said that you'll see people that will come to you with children who are no longer displaying the outward behaviours, but that those feelings have turned inwards. Yes, yes. Well, or they've lost their feelings. Or they've lost them. Yes, the emotions are stuck. The emotions are stuck. And one of the greatest displacement for foul frustrations to the self. Mommy, I hate myself. I don't want to live. Mommy, I wish I could die. And that's the worst. And that's the same frustration. It's the same frustration. But the attacking energy has to go someplace. It's best to take it to an emotional playground. That's always the best place for it. Doesn't count. It's not for real. And the energy can get released. But needs a bit of patience. When a child is full of mixed feelings, when they're full of, you know, I get so mad at you, mommy. I want to hit you, but I love you. I don't want to hurt you. When they can say that, and more characteristically, if a child is really healthy, they'll get there if they can feel about six or seven years of age, all the self-control that you are hoping for will be theirs. But it takes time to build. It's amazing that, isn't it? How, you know, we as a society spend so much time trying to control the behavior. And yet what I'm hearing from you is if you can make that an emotionally safe container, the behavior rights itself. It absolutely does. Our realization of our potential and our potential is every human being has the potential to be able to be in the driver's seat, to be in control, especially in terms of their emotions and instincts. And But it does take time to develop. And if conditions are conducive, it is totally spontaneous. It doesn't need to be taught. We just have to give it a room. And it's so crowded these days in our world and in our kids' spaces. And we have so many expectations on them. And they're revolving around their peers. So the safe places where they can truly be a child and have that place to feel safely and to express it with a bit of forgiveness. You know, I hate you. It's just best not even to respond. It's just... Yeah, I know you're frustrated right now. Oh my goodness, you must be frustrated. I was 10 minutes late. I could see you couldn't wait. You know, like it's just best not even to respond to it. Well, I mean, it's the same thing in one's marriage, right? Sometimes it's just better not to respond to what was said, you know, because it's not going to go anywhere. You're going to go down a rabbit hole. Yes, there was frustration and we can honor that. It's so interesting, this idea of, the importance of friends because it's something that I kept hearing through the pandemic. Yes, yes, and, and, yes, yes. And yes. my little 18 month old, so many people would say to me, in fact, almost everyone, are you worried that she has never been yes. on a play date or to a play group? And, you know, because of the work that I do and the people that have found the podcast, I said, absolutely not. She's the most securely attached baby, you know, that I've ever seen because mm. she's just had 18 months. With me, and, and I ran a workshop with an amazing child psychologist, a very dear friend of mine, and we had a thousand mums. And she said, You know, the most important thing your baby needs and toddler is you. And the comments just exploded at the relief. There's this narrative that we have to be socializing. Yes. Our and, the, and, and the pandemic, and the pandemic was an example where evidence started coming in because the helplines children started calling and so on, and they were in stress. Now, there is a legitimate place. There is when children are not safe at home. But let's leave that aside for now, because those aren't the mothers that are listening to this podcast. So let's leave that aside. But when children are peer-oriented, of course, the separation they're experiencing is from their peers. So naturally, they're in trouble. 
but it reveals the problem. They shouldn't have been peer oriented in the first place. So now the educational experts and pundits say that kids got to go back in school. We can't possibly cancel school because it's needed for their mental health. It's not needed for our mental health. All the research is actually the opposite. But the pandemic appeared to prove this point. In actual fact, there was a whole group of kids who were properly adult oriented. The stress went way down in their lives when they were able to be at home where it felt natural to be. Their learning went up. They thrived in that environment. But parents have lost their confidence that they are their child's answer. When you look around and you see that, you know, where is their need for belonging to be met? It's to be met with us. Where is their sense of significance to be met? It's to be met with us. If it is met with other peers, it's subject to cancellation with every mistake. Insecurity goes with it. Their only chance is with the adults who care for them, who are responsible for them, their parents, their family, their grandparents, and so on. That is their best chance. We've made a huge mistake. And again, the pandemic fed into a peer-oriented research and jumped to the wrong conclusions, exactly the wrong conclusions because of this peer orientation that was already rampant. How does someone know if their child is peer orientated at the cost of the primary attachment, as you would say? Well, when they're with their peers, you feel as if you lose them. They're following the cues of their peers. It's more important for them what their peers think, the contact and closeness. They're no longer seeking the family contact. They want peer contact. They complain when they can't be around their peers. It's just basically, how would you know if your partner's having an affair? We can figure this out. <laughs> you know, we know when they prefer to be with somebody else rather than us. It's just like that. When somebody else is on their radar, they're orienting, they're dressing like everything is important. They've been pulled out of orbit. And I use that analogy in it because from a developmental point of view, it is like an affair. We are meant to be the most important individuals in a child's life because that is the only way it works. So when we are not, we cannot be the parent they need. And that is tragic. We might have all the love to give. We might have all of the patience to give, but that's not benefiting the child because they're not looking to us for it. We can have a feast for them, speaking in analogy, a feast of love, of significance, and yet it won't benefit them all if they're not looking to us to be the answer to their belonging and significance and closeness and togetherness. It's confusing, I think, because the narrative is often as well that as your children get older, it's natural and normal. And I know you've mentioned those words before that they will orientate away from you. They'll want to be with their friends more. That's a very kind of accepted narrative in our society, isn't it? Unfortunately, and we confuse something. We confuse that when they're no longer depending upon us, they're independent. And so we think this is normal. This is natural because this is the way they're meant to be. In actual fact, It's like if we don't kick them out of the nest, they won't learn to fly. Well, that doesn't work with humans because if we do kick them out of the nest or we resist dependence or we resist our responsibilities, we're so afraid that they'll get stuck this way. They just depend upon somebody else. And so when they depend upon their peers, we think they're independent. 
they're in a much worse state. First of all, they shouldn't be depending upon each other. And secondly, their dependency needs aren't being met. And so there's no chance for them to become truly independent. The research is unequivocal that the most important factor in an adolescent's life is a strong emotional connection with a caring adult. That is unequivocal. 90,000 adolescents in a longitudinal study in the U.S. studied this year after year. It is not their peers. When something comes in the way with their parents, when there's a problem with their parents and so on, it's just dreadful for them. And yes, they fly to their peers for the answer, but for the most part, the peers can't rescue them. Sometimes they can. Some of us have been rescued by peers from a toxic situation, but I'm talking to what should be here. And what should be is that children, as long as they are not ready to fly in this world, they need to depend upon the adults who are responsible for them. And they need to orbit around those adults. It's so fascinating when you talk about that analogy of the affair, because what that brought up in me was just that really isn't parenting just about the strength of that relationship the connectivity attachment in you know in your terms and yet what I think is such a double-edged sword is you know and I know this from past relationships not my current marriage is that as you notice that pulling away you have less sometimes it can feel like how do I get this back you have less influence over that person as you feel like they care about you yes yes Yes. that's the time when I guess in parenting you know Parents are probably thinking, I can see that my child is not wanting to talk to me, is telling me to shut up, isn't interested in sitting at mealtimes with me. But how do I get them back? Well, Where does someone start with that? Zoe, it's the realization. The realization is everything. It doesn't mean it's easy. But if you know, like even in a marriage, if it's a relationship problem, then you stop harping on all of the things that are wrong and so on. You've got a deeper problem here is a person is not seeking to be with you. You're not the most important person in their life. There's a deeper problem. And you have to make a decision. Do you want to get this person back or not? But if you do, you focus on the relationship, not all of the behavior that, again, is not going to be satisfactory. Of course it is, and in a symptomatic. That's the biggest realization. Once you realize that there's many things we can do about a relationship, of course, it's totally different in marriage than it is with kids because we're responsible for them. So we need to get them back. But when we realize that, then most of us can figure out that we need to have rituals of togetherness. We need to figure out times that we can be in each other's company and there's smiles and there's, I mean, I go through this in the book and I lost my own teenage daughters. They're now 52 and 50. This is way back. But in their adolescence, I had to win them back. But you find a way of of focusing on the togetherness and focusing on the relationship and not letting anything get in the way, giving messages of relationship. Once you do this, for the most part, I've almost always seen incredible improvement. Now, you can't make anybody come back to you. There's nothing that you can do that can guarantee that you can win a child back, but there's certainly a lot of things we can do to increase that probability. Those are the things that are important. I talk about some of those things in the book, one-on-one time. That is not about harping on the normal behavior stuff or the academic stuff or so on, but really has to do with the building into the relationship. Lots about collecting, 
making sure there's lots of time during the day to get their eyes, the smiles and the nods and just engage in activity that just does this. Make sure you bridge anything that could divide you. Always put the focus on the next connection, that the relationship is strong enough to take the weight, no matter how difficult it is. You have to do this because if we can't hold on to them, and hence the title of the book, why would they ever want to hold on to us? We need to be the one to preserve the sense of togetherness. We are the ones responsible for this. But most of us can do this. We're in relationships. We don't necessarily do them very well. But we know how to do them, you know, when it comes to it, if it's important, we can figure it out. And what about if the peer is a screen? I've seen it in some of my extended family and, you know, where we'll go around for lunch and, you know, the 16 year old, 17 year old, they'll be constantly being pulled away by the Xbox or Minecraft or whatever it is. Is it the same principle if they're attaching to a screen? Well, it's not attaching to the screen. They're attaching to whatever is on the screen. It's either fragmented attachment. They have to win all the time. They have to be the best all the time and so on. And so it's something about the game that they're playing, or it is a contact that the messaging, it's a, it's a social media, but the screen is a medium. The screen is the actual conduit or the actual instrument of connection. This is the thing that's so simple that is unrecognized by so many yet is that we're still calling it the information age and the information age only lasted a very short time when we got all of the information to collapse into digital terms, ones and zeros. Then we had universal access to information. It was phenomenal because it's a dream come true, but our adolescents, our children, even our adults were not interested in more information. In fact, Our whole system, our nervous system, throws away about 95% of the information it has available to it. Our brain has never evolved to take in the information we have, never mind to increase it. The last thing we needed is more information. We don't need more information. So we took those digital devices and used them to connect with each other. And so the information age became the age of digital connection. The age of digital intimacy. And this is the news. But the problem is it's so easy to make a primitive connection there, being seen, of being heard. It's so attractive. It's so easy. It takes the place of the real connection, which is never very easy, that children really need. But where they can go to the depth, where they can give their heart away and have their heart understood, where they can feel seen and heard from the inside out, where is a sense of significance and belonging, a sense of grace, uh, that the relationship is the bottom line. These things can only be met in real relationships and in the relationships with the adults responsible for you. Because with our children, we will stretch like we will stretch for no one else, you know, when we love our children. And so that's what was meant to be. And it's the same as peer orientation. You say, oh, my goodness, this is competing with me. This is not good. Now, I may not be the best parent in the world, but I am the answer to my child. (laughs) So I need to get them back. So how would you do this? Well, you can't just say to a 16-year-old, if you've lost your power, you can't say, well, screens aren't allowed at mealtimes or screens aren't allowed this way because you've already lost that. So you've got to get them back first. Well, how would you get them back? Well, that is where you find a way, usually in play, 
find something they enjoy in playing, whether it's music, whether it's poetry, something you can do together. You can share the playground. In play, we get our smiles and our nods. Find something using play because play always engages and then we become more attractive to them and we've got a chance to be able to nod and smile and collect them. And so we've got to inch our way back. And as we inch our way back, we find we have more power. And as we have more power, we can say, okay, rule in this house. No screens at mealtime, no screens two hours before bedtime, no screens, this and this. And you start hemming it back. But you can't put in the restrictions until you've got the power. You don't have the power until you've got them wanting to be with you and like you and and seeking this. So it's a relationship issue that we need to address. And so many parents are trying to address this. It's impossible to address. The digital addiction is difficult as addiction to substances, to cigarettes and so on. It's impossible to address and it's pure orientation. Most of us know, like if we have a 16-year-old and they fall in love with someone, we might not like that person, but we know the chances of fighting that are like Romeo and Juliet, right? We know the story. We have all kinds of narratives about the story. So what do we do? Well, we bite the bullet. We invite the boyfriend, the girlfriend did. We try to get our daughter or son to see that, hey, this isn't a match. But we try to make it as easy as possible, right? Because we know this isn't something we're going to fight. But we have to have the same kind of wisdom, the same kind of understanding. When we need to get them back, we will need to do this wisely. Only use the power we have, but when we have the power, use it to preserve the relationship because there's nothing more important than that. Yeah, so reverse to the societal narratives about parenting, which is screen time and boundaries and and all of that. And yet, you know, what is so clear and obvious in some ways is that if you do that without having that core attachment relationship, yes. I guess you just push them even further away. To oh, you do. You do. You have the opposite effect of what you want. You never want your child to see how powerless you really are. So you don't say to them, I can't let you do that when you know very well that there is no way that you can not let them do that. You don't want to let your impotence show. So it's so important you stay within the power you have. It's like any friendship. Where does your power come from? The degree they seek togetherness with you. The strength of their relationship to you. If you have their heart, you have a lot of natural power. The interesting thing is when you have natural power, you never draw attention to it. I would never say to my children, I know I can count on you to do this because you love me so much. You would never actually say where your power lies. I don't think Samson's power lie in his hair, but you would never actually say where your power lie because this basically would destroy the power you have. But when you really do have a natural power there, you use it wisely and you preserve the relationship. The relationship is the bottom line, not behavior, not conduct. Relationship is the bottom line everywhere, in school, home, everywhere. It is the bottom line. Togetherness is Well, we know that with the pandemic now is that we just want togetherness, right? Togetherness is our preeminent need, but our children need us and we need to be their answer for their attachment needs. You've said that phrase a few times and it's really beautiful. We need to be 
our children's answer because I think it's very easy for parents to think that they don't have the answers that they need to seek experts in some ways even during this podcast I question myself I get all these you know experts on and I think could it be interpreted the underlying message here is that we need to divert to experts but I keep reminding myself actually what I talk about week in week out and I choose my guests very carefully like you and Gabor and others that it's about giving people space to connect back to what they already know trusting that instinct it's easy to lose that sense in trust in ourselves particularly if we have had our own generational challenges with our parents didn't instill that self-belief in ourselves suddenly we become parents and want to buy all the books yes well there was a huge mistake when we thought that knowledge was the answer and that knowledge is power this knowledge isn't power it is information to guide us where the power may be but it is not in itself power so when we realize that we don't feel confident. We have a baby, we have a child, and we don't feel confident. We say, well, somebody must know. The answer must be in a book. Maybe I didn't have that good of experience with my own family, so I'm not going to trust my mother and my grandmother here as I, I you know, go to the experts. The problem is not whether the experts are right or not. The problem is if I give too much heed to them, if I go by what they say, Then I become dependent upon them when is what is really needed with my child is not for me to know what to do. What is really needed is for me to believe that I am their best bet, that I am the answer. Now, as soon as I take that position, I'll go back to marriage again. Like what provides the juice of a relationship? Well, it's not knowing how to be married. The more books you read, the worse it gets. It is not knowing about this. The juice of a marriage is you can see this is when you really believe you are the other's best bet and you act like it and you are true to it and you are busy figuring out how to be that where you don't have confidence. And that is juice. And as soon as you lose your confidence, Do you get deflated? As soon as you lose the confidence that you are your partner's best bet, wow, the deflation, it just takes the air right out of the sails. Now, that is the same about parents. You can take a 16-year-old, and I have that research in my book, and you have a six-year-old, and you inflate her. You give her the message, you are your child's best bet. Oh, your baby is so lucky to have you, honey. You are going to... You are going to be just what that child needs. And you watch that six-year-old who's never had a baby before, who knows nothing about it, who can come from a family of abuse. All of a sudden, she finds that place in her, an alpha, give me that baby. And all of a sudden, things start right. Why? She's dancing. She's dancing. It's a dance. This is the oldest dance in the universe. You don't dance for a book. This is a dance. You have to find that place in you. We have lost that place. We have lost that confidence. Now, if you come to your child this way, the rest will start coming. You'll figure it out. And my father told me this long ago. He said, you know, Gordon, you are making the biggest mistake of your life writing a parenting book. And he said, Dad, why? I laughed. I said, Dad, why? He said, you must never tell parents what to do. Well, I said, Dad, actually, I'm trying to write a book that I don't do that. But go ahead, tell me. And he said, well, Gordon, he said, 
I don't know why people can't figure this out anymore. Nobody knew what to do. It's always been a bluff. Only some of us knew how to bluff until we got there. You have to actually step up to the plate and say, I've got this. I am going to be your answer to your needs for significance and belonging, for affection, for love. I am going to do this. I'm going to hold on to you. I've got this. And then we pedal like crazy to underneath the surface to make it come true. But the first step is not knowledge. The first step is that actually stepping up to the plate with all of the ignorance we know we have. And we just said, it's my baby. I'm the mother. I'm the father. I'm their best bet. I've got this. I'm going to do it. And it's like when you can say to your partner, you're lucky you have me. (laughs) When you have that, you know you have something special. When you both have it, that's mutual. And when you have that with your child, oh, are they ever lucky to have you as a mom? And that would be true long before there were ever any books long before there was any knowledge that could have been read. So books, for the most part, get in the way. I'd like to think my book is different because I'm trying to speak to the relationship. But knowledge actually gets in the way because we think the answer is in knowing what to do. This is tricky because it's not in having the answers. It is in being the answer. It's not having the answers. It's in being the answer. And the same as marriage, a relationship. Once you stop being the other's answer, the marriage falls apart. If it's not reciprocal, it's not having the answers, it's being the answer. And that is what we are meant to be to our children. And that is an attitude. It's a dance. It's accepting that role. Once you accept that, the other starts all developing in its place. The knowledge has a place to hang on to. But if you don't, the knowledge has no place. It makes you more dependent. You're starting, you know, I would have parents who say, well, just tell me what to say. Tell me what to do. I say, you'll never parent from that place. That is the worst place to parent. If you are looking for what to say and what to do, you have lost the whole idea of what the dance is about. You just get in there. You are the answer. From that place, every situation will inform you. You know, what's coming up for me is I did transformational coach training. And in one of the modules, we just had to sit with someone, no words for like, an hour or something that was magical and the connection and the wisdom it's just made me think about that and how actually there's no words really is there there's no words for what you're describing why suddenly I don't know the words which is just that beauty of that connection and trust with another and if it's with a child that's the essence of it isn't it that's the juice yes. that's the juice from and it doesn't necessarily make it easy. It's messy. It's complicated. It's not always easy. But the simplicity of it should not be lost. And again, it's the oldest dance. (laughs) The attachment is the oldest dance. It's one takes care of another. You step up to take care. You step up to be the answer. You don't forget how first. Mm, Such a beautiful phrase that might write that on my fridge. I am my girl's answer. I always ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Well, that's easy, especially we've just talked about it. And so it's easy. It's confidence. It's confidence. 
Is the confidence or the arrogance? <laughs> I don't know what to, be the arrogance in the right way of not the arrogance and thinking you know more, but there is a certain natural arrogance that is in any relationship as a friend when you believe that you're the other's answer. This confidence is, I'm convinced that the real crisis today is a crisis of confidence, not a crisis of knowledge, it's a crisis of confidence. And the more dependent we become on others and experts, the less confident we become. That's why I'm trying to turn this around. Yes, yes, yes. I've written a book. Yes, I've seen as an expert. Yes, I've taught parenting, child-parent relations in university for umpteen years. Yes, I have you know, created these courses. But the fact is, is how do you speak to the relationship, not to the knowledge? And so that is my wish. I would so often wish this. I would say to my clients sometimes in my office, I just wish there was a confidence pill I could give you because if you could walk there in your alpha instincts, in your alpha caring, believing that you are your child's best bet and looking to be the answer your child needs. And if this was there, the rest would follow. I wish confidence. It's really hard these days to find that. It was interesting. I, I don't know whether it went ahead in the UK with, uh, I was approached at one time, and this was a decade back, I believe, when they wanted to make parenting a course in school, in public school, in high school, and so they could teach how to parent. And they were so surprised that I was so much against it because I said, well, there's nothing that will take you away from your intuition more than learning it in a text. There's nothing that could be worse because that's not what starts. You have a baby. Now you might be interested in looking a few things up, but you have to accept the dance and the dance has to be real uh, before you're going to be able to be mentored in that. That's very true. My experience as well. You kind of jump out the plane and find the parachute, right? (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) This isn't quite so risky, but... (laughs) Yeah, it's riskier for the child if we don't do this, but yes. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy and an honour. Thank you for your wisdom and your humility. And I've just really taken from this to trust myself. From this point on, I'm trusting myself a lot. (laughs) Find that juice and that parenting relationship. Well, it's, it's been an absolute delight to talk with you. And to share these thoughts with you, I hope they can make a difference to some of your listeners. They will. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, 
and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.